Well, last time we talked about, as we've been kind of building this scenario here for bringing us up to where we're at in the 20th century with everything that we're dealing with, and it helps you understand it. Um, you know, I wish that I wish that everybody uh, I wish that everybody could understand church history. I, I think it means so much more, adds so much depth to to where you're at, you know, and gives you an appreciation for, you know, what you do have. And last time we talked about uh, West Cotton Hort, and we talked about how that uh, toward the end of the 1800s, you know, the devil had begun to formulate everything. He His main attack was going to be the 20th century. There's no question about that when you look back through history through the eyes of the Bible. And uh, he spent half of the 19th century getting ready for that pack. And we talked about, you know, all the pieces are in place for us. We talked about around the 1900s, the, you know, the neo-Orthodox movement that took care of the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Methodists. We talked about the neo-evangelicals. That was the group that came on that, that really, uh, you know, uh, took a large portion of things. We talked about the charismatic movement and how that that all all of those happened within 20 years or within a 20-year period between, I say, 1890 and 1910, somewhere in there. Add to that, then, from the middle part of the 19th century, you had the the cults coming in. You had the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons. uh, All of the the things that now are going to run opposition against uh, the book and, and Bible Christianity. And the devil knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he had to do, and he accomplished it very clearly. We talked about two men that are probably the two men that are responsible for Bible Christianity losing their Bible, Westcott and Hort. Both men were Englishmen. They both were trained by the Jesuits. They both were pawns in the Counter-Reformation that had went on for 300, 400 years in Europe. They both come out of Oxford uh, and are connected also with Cambridge, which are the two main university, theological universities in England, which were taken over by the Jesuits by the 1800s. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where they, they put forth the theory that of, of the City Atticus and Nevada Candus manuscripts uh, were the better manuscripts because they were older manuscripts. When it all came down to it, and I've talked about this to you before, when it all came down to it, once the, uh, it all got looked at and, and, and examined, City Atticus and Vaticanus were basically um, the same parchments. And they are the same measurements. They're on tan vellum leather plates, animal skins. And it, in fact, they had, they matched to a T uh, the exact uh, order that Eusebius gave to Constantine in 400 A.D. Uh, or Constantine gave to Eusebius, who got him from Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, without a doubt, the Sinaiticus manuscripts and the Vaticanus manuscripts are are part of those 50 copies of the New Testament that uh, Constantine ordered from Alexandria through Eusebius. We talked about that months ago when we were coming through here. No question about it. Nobody's ever seen Vaticanus. 
Roman Catholic Church. Uh, their, their Vatican library is, is tighter than Fort Knox. And uh, it's all underground. It's all sealed. It's all chambered. You've got you to be somebody real special to be able to even get into it. Nobody's ever seen Vaticanus, uh, ever held it. The only thing that they let you do is they have taken photographs of it, and they, they have the photograph, but nobody's ever really seen it. City Atticus is in the British Museum. City Atticus was uh, basically stolen from the St. Catherine's Monastery by Tischendorf, who by hook or crook was going to get those manuscripts out, and he did. He finally uh, persuaded the Bishop of Cairo to allow him to uh, take them uh, to uh, be examined. And uh, after every other way of trying to get them from him uh, failed, he basically asked them for them to loan them to him that he might take them and study them and, and make copies of them and then give them back. And, of course, once they left the, uh, the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they never got them back. Today, they're in the British Museum. Along with the original letter, I might add, that, uh, uh, that Constantine, uh, through Eusebius, wrote to Alexandria, getting the 50 copies. So the devil was at this for a long time, and he had planned this for a long time. Um, you know, if you're ever going to be a, a, a preacher or a teacher of the Bible or just a Bible student, uh, the thing that you want to get to you is depth. You want to be able to have depth to what you know. Nothing will give you depth to what you know more than understanding church history. Most preachers, you know, are very surface in their preaching. You can always tell somebody who, when they preach, you hear a sermon or whatever they do, you know, you can get about 50 sermons out of it because there's so much depth to it. Everything leads to something else that leads to something else, and it's just, and that, things like that happen because you build yourself up with information over the years, and, uh, you know, you have so much to draw on. It's like getting water out of a deep well versus get most, you know, getting water out of a deep well versus getting water out of a mud puddle. And that's what most preachers preaching is today. It's a mud puddle preaching. There's no depth to it. And, um, you know, church history gives you a dimension to your life and a dimension to your ministry that is unparalleled by anything I've ever found. Uh, the Bible will never completely make sense to you till you understand church history. Uh, what God is doing down through history and how it all ties together and how you see that everything goes back to the Bible will we'll never pull together for you until you understand, you know, to some extent, the things that we've talked about. Westcott and Hort were the final phase to bring about the destruction of the Word of God. The King James Bible had reigned now since 1600 to 1900, uh, 300 years. And during that 300 years, more souls were won to Christ. You know, I talked Sunday about uh, that little deal about Wendy's, you know, where's the beef and, and bringing it around to Christian, where's your fruit? There's no other Bible on this planet in the history of the world that produced more fruit than the King James 1611 Authorized Version. That alone would be the telltale sign that that's God's Word. And there never was a revival that came about by any other translation. There never was a, a movement of God's Spirit. In fact, once the other translations went out, the Spirit of God pretty much ceased to exist as far as revival is concerned. And, um, you know, it's a... It's, and, and everything began to go downhill from there. And, uh, you know, we, uh, 
it, it's the key is, is dealing with the Word of God. Westcott and Hort bring forth that fairy tale Bible for a Disneyland Christianity. And that's really what has happened to it. That's where it's at. And that's exactly what has transpired. For every Bible from the RSV on is nothing more than a Roman Catholic Bible. I think one of the greatest illustrations that I, I've come up with over the years, and you've heard me say it many times, but I think it probably is, the, for me anyhow, in, in getting my point across, it's probably the greatest illustration that I've ever come up with to show you the difference uh, of what you're really dealing with. And you hear me tell it all the time that if you were back in the 1850s and you walked into a Christian bookstore and you told them you wanted a Bible, they would basically ask you, uh, well, we have two. We have a King James 1611 and we have the Douay Reims Roman Catholic Bible. You only had two choices. And you'd have to take one of those two Bibles. And back then, everybody knew, everybody knew what the Roman Catholic Church Bible was and everybody knew what the King James Bible was. King James Bible comes off a text which has been given the name down uh, on the latter part of church history, Texas Receptus, which is, which is Latin for the received text. In other words, the very name itself tells you that that was the only text that was received among uh, the Christian church. And back then, the Catholic church was not called Christian. Most people don't know that. Uh, back then, you had Christians and Catholics. Catholics were not denoted as Christians. They were denoted as Catholics. It wasn't until Vatican II or somewhere along there where Catholics started to be put in the lump of Christians with Christians. But uh, most people don't understand that back uh, in the early uh, latter parts of the 18th, well, all through uh, history, but up to the beginning of the 19th century, up to the first half of the 20th century, anyhow, that Catholics uh, were not considered Christian in that terminology. There were Catholics, and there were Christians, and there were Jews. And uh, that's the way it basically went down. And, of course, as time went on and things got mushed together, then they get lumped in with Christianity, and now everybody's a Christian. And, you know, that's just the way it is. So Westcott and Hort really do the work. And, you know, like I said, if you went into a bookstore in the 1850s and you said, I want to get a Bible, you'd have two choices. And uh, if you go into a bookstore today and you say, I want to get a Bible, you're faced with probably, you know, 500 to 600 choices. There is a, there is a version of the Bible for everything and everybody. And uh, it's endless, absolutely endless. And it seems to overwhelm people today because under, people today, you know, don't understand the real issue. And it's your job, once you have this material, to make sure that people understand the real issue. And the real issue is simply this. If you go into a bookstore today and you say, I want to buy a Bible, and you're faced with 500 Bibles, you're still only faced, with reality, with two Bibles. Because the King James Bible still is the book that stands by itself. And every other Bible, no matter what translation it may be, and it may run to 500 to 600, all of those will be off the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus Roman Catholic manuscript. So in essence, even though there may be 500 different Bibles to choose from, they're all the same Bible in the fact that they come from the Roman Catholic manuscripts. Therefore, they are Roman Catholic Bible in their makeup and their nature. So there's really only two Bibles today. And that will be, uh, you know, that's what the devil wanted to get rid of. And Westcott and Hort were the willing tool to be used to, to put an end to the common man with a common Bible, 
and then bring about a Christianity that is based on scholarship, based on um, the theories now that uh, because these manuscripts are older, therefore they just must be better. And it never occurred to anybody that the reason why that you could not find uh, any, uh, any early, early manuscripts that were complete that the King James Bible came off of was simply because of the fact that where Sinead, you holding your ears because you don't want to hear me speak or what? You're hurting my feelings here. Because the uh, Sinaiticus and Medicanus were done on the vellum parchments, okay, tan leather. The King James Bible manuscripts were done on a piece of paper which is called papyrus paper. And papyrus paper is, is a very cheap paper. The closest thing today that you could um, uh, match it up with would be like what your newspapers printed on. That's a good indication of what papyrus paper is. Papyrus paper does not survive very well. You, leather scrolls will survive forever. But papyrus paper is like newspaper print. And uh, when people, hundreds of thousands of people were copying them, hiding them, protecting them in all forms of weather, it's easy to see how they were wore out very quickly. But they never considered that. Because they're not, they're not concerned about the truth of the Word of God. They're just concerned about, you know, finding something that uh, has the antiquity to it that goes along with their theory. And uh, so by 1900, the lights are growing very dim. And uh, Westcott and Hort uh, puts forth their, 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 their text, which becomes, as I said last time, Nestle's Greek New Testament. And I remember I told you that, and these are things you've got to learn. You've got to learn the terminology. One of the best books you'll ever get that define the terminology is that little Ruckman Bible back there with that lion on it. It's about three bucks, and it's worth three thousand dollars in in basic understanding of, of of your Bible. It defines all the terms. It'll define papyrus. It'll define what a text is, a manuscript is. And I told you last week that a manuscript is like the Shidiatic and Vaticanus. And what they do is they take that manuscript or families of manuscripts. Uh, that's what we passed out to you there today. And when they get five or six uh, texts, because maybe not one text has a complete New Testament in it, they'll get other families of manuscripts that are, are kin to that text. And what they'll do is they'll take that Greek manuscript and then they'll 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 put it into a uh, they'll put it into a New Testament Greek text. And that'll be taking the manuscripts and developing it into a New Testament Greek text, which now is in a form of a book, like a Bible. And then from that, they will use that to correct the King James Bible or, in some cases, put out a new translation. Uh, when your college professor gets up and begins to correct the Bible, uh, or you hear a pastor get up and say something like this, now that word in the English there says this, but in the Greek it means this. What he has done is he has his Bible and he has Nestle's New Testament Greek text. He reads the verse in his Bible then he'll go into his Nestle's New Testament Greek text and check the words in the Greek and line them up to the word with the English and take the Greek meaning over the English meaning. And that's why he will change the definition of the word for you because he's correcting the English with his Greek New Testament. That's what they're doing with it. And uh, they, they, they take the position that the English is not, is not what God wants us to have. 
And, of course, that's simply not true. God gave the Bible in only three languages. And in the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The early New Testament was written in Greek. And then God gave both Testaments to the Gentile world in English in the form of a King James Bible. And uh, nobody speaks the Greek language today. The Greek language that it, it is found in the, in the theological circles is not even the Greek language that they speak in Greece. It's a dead language. Nobody speaks it anymore, as Latin is a dead language. And the only true language today that survived down through history of the ancient world is, is Hebrew. And that's because uh, that's God's language. So by 1900, the lights are going out. The old uh, prophecy of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 holds true. The angel of level becoming an angel of light. And as the Bible goes down the, down the drain, so does the country. We saw it, talked about it last time. I talked about it Sunday. How that country by country, men uh, turn in the book and uh, get rid of the Bible. And we see the apostasy begin to creep in. And um, most people don't understand it, but the success of every nation... And it, whether it rises or falls will always be based on what that nation does with the Word of God. And that is in direct relation to what God's people do with the Word of God. We know that the unsaved people aren't going to do anything with it. But if the saved people within that country that hold up the light of the Word of God, that God honors the things in that country. And, of course, uh, the country goes when the Bible goes, and the Bible goes when God's people dump it. And that's just the way it works. And the apostasy creeps in. And... Uh, you're going to find that up through this period of time, uh, you'll find uh, God's faithful few who, who keep the lights on. And you're going to find that uh, I don't care where it is, I don't care when it is, we're going to get into this in one of the minor prophets here. I think it's the, the next one, or maybe not the next one, but two down the line someplace. God always has his remnant. I don't care where it is. That's one of the absolute truths you can take and everywhere you go and deal with it and know that it's absolutely true. God always has his remnant. No matter how black it gets, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how absolutely much the lights are out, in any place, in any time in the history of the Bible, in the history of man, God has always had his remnant. And... Uh, you know, in Israel's darkest hour, when Elisha was crying to God that he was all by himself, God says, I've got 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. There'll always be a remnant. And I think the thing that, that you don't understand, and I wish I could get our whole church to understand this, but it ain't going to happen. There's a lot of things that I started uh, with this church that I wanted to accomplish that I've pretty much given up on. I know that it's just not feasible to the day we live in. So I, I scale back and say, hey, I'll just be happy with what I can accomplish, and then maybe out of that group, a few will be able to go the distance. But to the idea that the whole church will, in a world that we live in, is just, it's just not feasible. It's not going to happen. And you're going to find that, uh, you know, all of these things, you know, as a, God's always had his faithful few, no matter where it's been. He's always got the job done in spite of it. And the thing that you don't realize is today, in 2010, we are that remnant. You and me are the remnant. 
And uh, that we don't see it that way. Most people today, even in our own church, they, they're good people, they love God, they love the Bible, but they just don't see themselves in the role of the time that we're in. We are. We, people like us, and we're very few, people like us, churches like us, is the remnant today. And uh, God's remnant all down through history has been persecuted by the status quo. As, you know, we get clobbered all the time of being a cult in the basement, you know, and, a, and all of those things. That's standard operational procedure all down through the history of the church. God's faithful few has always paid the price to be God's faithful few. And uh, you find them down through uh, as the lights go out. God has his lights in every generation, all the way down through it. You know, these are not in any particular order. We've talked about many of them, but now we put them into the context of the end of the 1800s, the early 1900s, guys like Billy Sunday. You know, Billy Sunday was a guy who single-handedly brought in prohibition. Uh, He single-handedly put an end to alcohol and booze in this country through his preaching. And uh, he was hated for it. You got guys like uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a great preacher, who believed the King James Bible. Guys like Bob Jones Sr., uh, who uh, started uh, Bob Jones University. And though the boys after him, Bob Jones the second and Bob Jones the third, weren't worth the bullet to take them out and put it in the back of their head. Uh, the old man was a, was a Methodist old-time preacher who believed every day of his life that the King James Bible was the Word of God. You got guys like Charles Fuller and, 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 and Charles DeHaan, who were great early radio preachers, who captivated and got the Word of God out to, Lord only knows how many millions of people, they all believed the King James Bible. All guys like, guys like B.R. Lakin, uh, all down from the South in the Bible Belt, uh, B.R. Lakin was a great preacher. Uh, Clarence Larkin, we, you know, we have his books. T.T. Uh, T. Shields, uh, W.B. Riley, uh, one of the great preachers, Mordecai Ham, uh, John Jasper Ray, a black preacher that preached to the slaves during the Civil War up to the, uh, you know, the beginning of the 1900s. You know, uh, Oswald J. Smith from uh, Canada. Uh, you know, uh, Harry Rimmer. Uh, Harry Rimmer wrote a, a lot of books dealing with the Bible and science. Harry Rimmer had a standing officer, off, offer back in the 30s and the 40s that he had a standing offer of, of, of $30,000. Now, $30,000 don't sound like much today, but back in the 30s and the 40s, that would have been equivalent to about $300,000. He had a standing offer. If anybody could prove uh, anything out of the Bible that was not false uh, dealing with science, that they could collect that money. And he'd been challenged many, many times, and nobody ever collected the money. And he's got some great books. One of his great books is a book called uh, Harmony of Science and Scripture. Long out of print. Incredible book, oh, Great book. And in that book, he deals with the missing day in time. He deals with uh, those things that you don't read about anymore. You got uh, uh, guys like Lee Robinson and James McGinley. Um, guys like Wendell Zimmerman, and Wendell Zimmerman uh, was, a, was one of J. Frank Norris's boys that started out being a radio preacher, came to Kansas City, and uh, began a church here. 
And uh, Barb Christie, his sister, is married to one of Zimmerman's boys. Isn't that the way it is? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible to how this thing died. John Rawlings. John Rawlings from Cincinnati, Ohio. An old guy up from Kentucky. All of these guys, all of these guys that believed the book and held on to the book come up from the South. And uh, up from the Bible Belt. Because they were so saturated with the book down there, and they're just backwoods, redneck country boys that never got past the sixth grade. And they never, and then education never had a chance to spoil them. And these guys are the guys that God raised up in the early part while the lights were going out that, that carried the torch. Uh, and we're going to see how it all happened here. And one of the things that I want to bring about in this as we move toward the end of this is I want to show you uh, how this thing got to where you and I are today. How that old past Baptist church is in this line. And, uh, you know, it's a very important thing to be able to see it. You had guys like my pastor when I was in Canton, Harold Henniger. He started a Canton Baptist temple all the way back in 1945, 1946. My mom and dad were charter members in that church. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he start, he's one of those guys who started out believing the book, but then wound up not believing it. Now, John Rawlings is a guy just like him. They are contemporaries. They come out of Norris's group together. And John Rawlings believed the Word of God uh, when he started and believed the Word of God when he died. And I think he just died three or four years ago, about 96. And uh, he pastored a church in Cincinnati called Landmark Baptist Church, which was the first Baptist church in Ohio, going all the way back to the uh, 1700s someplace in there, before it was even a state. Old Southern evangelists like R.G. Lee, you know, and uh, Scotty Alexander, uh, William Ward, Robert Bevington. We talked briefly about Bruce Cummings from Maslin, who pastored the Maslin Baptist Temple. He went home to be with the Lord uh, three or four years ago. Believed the King James Bible every day of his life. Otis Fuller, who wrote the great works uh, that uh, championed the text of the Texas Receptor, which is called Which Bible? by Otis Fuller. He also wrote some, a book called Genuine or Counterfeit. And he took the task a Westcott and Hort's theory, and uh, and uh, he was a scholarly guy, and uh, he 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 took the task, the theory that Westcott and Hort put forth. Of course, he's ridiculed by the scholars, blacklisted, you know, and um, you know it's the uh, it's just the way it works. But his books are all out of print. But he had some great stuff. Harry Ironside, another radio preacher that that put out. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of basic Bible books. I think he had a book on every book of the Bible. Not a lot of doctrine in them, but just good surface stuff. And he believed the Bible all of his life. And uh, Robert Schuller, uh, who was the grandson of the, uh, of the idiot Robert Schuller that runs the Crystal Cathedral out there. And the tragedy of tragedies, or the joke of tragedies, however you want to look at it, is that old man Schuller... Uh, the granddad was a hellfire damnation Methodist preacher. And, uh, boy, he believed the King James Bible every day of his life. Something went wrong someplace. And, uh, and he turned out a grandson, or grandson came out of Robert Schuller, which is, you know, incredibly screwed up. And, but there it is. G. Harold Smith, uh, Donald Barnhouse, great, great expository preacher. Sam Jones, another great preacher. Uh, Harold Seitler, 
uh, from Greenville, South Carolina. What a great preacher he was. I've heard him preach four or five times in my life, long dead, but boy, what a great, powerful preacher. You had to hear these guys preach to appreciate what I said Sunday about the art of preaching. These guys could take these guys could take a text out of the Bible and wind you up so much in it by the way they laid it out and a the picture they painted that you just lose all sense of time. And before you know it, you were just caught completely in, in, in the message that they had for you because they were powerful preachers. They had the power of God because they had the word of God and they believed it and they loved it. And they had the passion of God and they were great preachers. Uh, Carl Lackey, Victor Sears and his brother Howard Sears, both great preachers. Uh, Jack Peter, Gerald Fleming was another great preacher. And uh, Tom Juff, Al Janney from Florida was another great King James Bible preacher. Fred Brown, one of the greatest Bible teachers you're ever going to find in the 20th century. He had memorized completely the New Testament. I mean, he had memorized the complete whole New Testament. And he didn't waste time with an RSV or an ASV. He memorized a King James 1611 authorized version. And of course, uh, uh, Dick Kidd, A.H. Uh, Strong, Lester Ruloff, who out of, uh, out of Texas, Charles Billington, who uh, started the Akron Baptist Temple back in the 1970s, running 10,000 in Sunday school. Never been to Bible college a day in his life, crossed over the river from Kentucky back in the days of the Depression, came up to Ohio to get a job, went to Akron, Ohio. One of the greatest books you will ever read on planet Earth is the book of his biography, God is Real. Long out of print. I remember years ago, there was a, a, a pastor that I was associated with that uh, was a college and career guy. And I just moved to Kansas City. And, uh, you know, he was, I was bringing my, getting my book set up into my office and whatever. And he uh, was looking through them, you know, and, and um, he picked up a, the book, God is Real. And he just kind of scoffed at it, that it wasn't much of a theological work, and threw it on the table. And I thought to myself, you ass. You, you just don't even know what, how stupid you are. That man had, in that book, had, had the hand of God on him to the place where he, he raised, uh, built a church in a depression. And he put, I mean, that thing is, it, that thing, the book says what the title is. God is real. But that's the attitude today, you see. Those guys aren't looked at because they weren't scholarly. And uh, it's a thing where uh, the old man Billington boy, he was something else. I mean, uh, I used to hear stories about him. I only met him once or twice. He died shortly after I got right with the Lord. But I heard him preach a couple of times. But I heard the stories about him. Boy, he was something else. I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd preach, on, preach the hell out of you on Sunday morning and you'd go through the week, and you'd cross him up with something. He'd give you a seven-star cussing like you never had in your life, man. And uh, people don't understand that today, you know. And I'm not justifying what he did, or well, I'm just telling you. That those old boys, they, they were rough, man. They were rough. And uh, they didn't need deacon to throw somebody out of the church. You got scuffy in their church. They'd come down off the pulpit, take you with a scruff in the neck, and run you out the door on their own. And uh, these guys were, were a man's man. Parker Daly's another one. Parker Daly pastored the uh, Blue Ridge Baptist Temple right here in Kansas City. Powerful preacher. One of the most powerful preachers I ever heard in my life. Believed the King James Bible all of his life. But a powerful preacher. I mean, he's just a great preacher. And uh, 
You know, guys like Beecham Vick, and the, the list is endless. But it's these guys that, that, that held it together. And God's always had his remnant. What happened was, is that these churches began to break off into little groups called fellowships. And uh, we're going to talk about how that happened a little bit later on. I want you to go back, and I, I don't know if we'll get through it tonight or not, but I want you to see uh, the import and the impact of the Baptist church uh, in, in America. And then I want to show you how it split. I want to show you where it went. And I want to show you how we exist today and how we come out of it. It's very important. But one by one, every Bible college in America uh, begins to buy the theory from 1900 on of Westcott and Hort with a tremendous zeal. And uh, it, it is pushed on the young ministerial students until two or three or four generations later, um, every kid coming out of Bible college isn't worth the powder to blow him to hell. I mean, they have been denied, out, talked out of their faith. They come out believing the Bible is full of mistakes. And um, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I have, if you ever want to get me in a cussing streak, you just get me talking about Bible colleges for very long, and I'll lose it and be gone off the hill with it. Because it just, I hate them. I absolutely hate them. I abhor them. If I had all the, I think I told you, God forgive me, but I'll say it again, because I need forgiven again today. Amen. But I'd, if I had the wherewithal, I'd blow every one of them to the, the kingdom come. And it's just absolutely the damage they have done, destroying young men's faith in the Word of God. And maybe you don't see it sitting out there in your seat, just doing your little life thing. But I've had 40 years of it stuck in my face, and I've seen the damage that they've done. I've seen the young men that they've destroyed. I've seen them take young men and young ladies who had a heart for God and come out of that thing just as cold as indifferent and educated out of their intelligence. I've seen how it happens, and I have no love for it, no love for it whatsoever. Finally, in a convention in Sarasota, Florida, in 1883, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Northern Baptists surrendered their birthright for a mess of pottage by voting in that convention down there to officially uh, drop the King James Bible as the Word of God and accept the Roman Catholic Dark Ages Bible uh, over the God-honored text of Antioch. And at that point, they officially adopted the RSV of 1881. And, uh, and after, of course, the rest is history. The only ones who protested were the ignorant rabble-rousers and the troublemakers, the unlearned non-scholars. Remember them? You know, it's a lot like, it's not too much unlike what we have faced with today, if you want a comparison. We have our federal government that will play the role of Bible colleges and theological scholars. They're worthless. You have the common ordinary people who will make up the Tea Party groups. They want their country back. They want right and right and wrong and wrong. They want, they want smaller government. They want less government in their lives. They want, they want a government that does what they want to do, not what, they, not what the government wants to do. And what happens? They're maligned by the big guys as being the same thing as, as they were here. Troublemakers, you know, rabble-rousers, unlearned, stupid people, rednecks. You know, they're all downplayed to be problematic people. And that's always what happens in any scenario. And it's a great lesson to learn. There's so many lessons that are for everyday life that you can see across the board when you, when you look at these things and you see it. 
And uh, the, the, these guys, uh, you know, had stood up. They were the remnant of the Donatists, the Monetists, and the Ovations who came uh, through the Bible believers line to the Baptist mindset who knew where their Bible came from, and they were never educated beyond their intelligence. And they, they knew where their, where their bread was buttered with the Word of God. And they were not about to accept what scholarship was going to put on them. God's always had his remnant. But they're severely persecuted for it. And uh, once the hierarchy, just like in our government, once the, once the, once the, you know, I've said it many, many times, I've never understood why anybody would, would spend in a campaign, what, $30 million, in some cases $100 million to become a senator or a congressman? Why would you spend, why would you spend $30 million for a job that only lasts four years that only pays you $80,000 a year? Does that make sense to anybody here? Obviously, the answer to that is power and corruption. And when you get into power, you can, you get then tied in with a lobbyist and you, that's where the money is. And you get, how many times do we find congressmen or senators? Charlie Rangel. You know, he walks down there with that big mopey look on his face like I'm a victim. That old boy has squirreled more money away and cheated more deals and made more under table to deals uh, and cut, cheated on his taxes. If you try it, you go to jail. When they do it, they become a senator. And that's just the way it is. But that's the way it was back here, too. Once the hierarchy got in charge of the churches and the, they all got their schools going... Then it became a good old boy society where they just took care of each other and uh, they, the power was there. The power was there, the money was there, the prestige was there. And it's a lot like, it's a, lot like a great lesson that you learn uh, at the end of World War II. And it's a great lesson because at the end of World War II, you find a great lesson. You find the fact that whoever wins World War II gets to decide who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It doesn't matter if you're made a bad guy and you're a good guy. When you have the power and you have the the and you have won and you have all the marbles in your court, then you can decide who's right and who's wrong and nobody can go opposition against you. That's what came out of World War II. We had won, America had won, so now America decides who's good and who's bad. We, we slapped the Germans because of their atrocities and the, their death camps. And uh, we, we took uh, uh, all the high Nazi officials in the Nuremberg trials and we hung them all. But yet at the same time, because we didn't want the Japanese to fall to the communists, we didn't hardly try any of their, uh, their guys. I think we, we executed three or four of their top guys. They had the Bataan Death March. Where they, where they butchered, you know, I don't know how many thousands of our boys off the Philippine Islands. They had the rape of Nanchung, uh, China, where they butchered in Singapore. Uh, there was atrocity after atrocity when a Doolittle flyers dropped over their bombs in retaliation for the Pearl Harbor. The boys that were shot down, they sent them to death. Some of them escaped. Some of them made it through. They beheaded three or four of them. Nothing was ever done with the atrocities that the Japanese did. You know why? Because we wasn't going, we wanted them to be our ally. We already knew over in Europe that the Russians had taken Berlin, so it was going to be a toss-up. But Japan was free from Russian control. So you know what America did? They did the same thing they did in the Southern Baptist Church some years before. 
Because they're in power, they decide that the Germans are bad and the Japanese are good. They, 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 Hitler committed suicide. If Hitler would have not committed suicide, I guarantee you, Hitler would have went before a firing squad and been hung. Himmler, he took suicide, took cyanide. Goring, he only beat the hangman by about three or four hours. He had a pill stuck up his rectum that nobody found, and, and he took cyanide and died before they hung him. Von Rippentrop, they hung him. Everybody either got hung or they got life imprisonment. The poor little guy, Rudolf Hess, who flew over before the war started and parachuted into England before anything happened in World War II. He died in Spandau Prison, got a life sentence, when he wasn't even part of the system that when the war started. That was in 1939. But the emperor of Japan, we make peace with Japan and we say, you know what? You can keep your emperor. That would be like looking at Germany and saying, well, we'll end the war. You can keep Adolf Hitler. The emperor was the one that they thought he was a god. He's the one that had the final say. How come we did this to the Germans? I'm not saying we shouldn't have. I'm saying we should have done it to the Japanese too. Well, the emperor just died, what, 20-some years ago? He was still the emperor. We send MacArthur over there, and MacArthur makes them, reforms them into a, into a little America. Why? Because we did not want them falling to the Russians, so we ignored their atrocities, made them the good guys, made the Germans the bad guys, and the Italians, and the Russians. But that's what happens when you're in power. When you're in power, you can decide who the good guys are and the bad guys are, and everybody goes along with it. And when the, when the colleges and the seminaries got to a place with the churches and the pastors that they were powerful, they decided that they were the good guys <laughs> and we were the bad guys. And in the Sarasota, Florida deal, boy, when they took the RSV and all those little old rabble-rousing guys from all over the world stood up and all over the country stood up and said, you're out of your mind. We're not dumping that book. They were labeled as bad guys because when you have the power <clears throat> to say who is bad and who is good, that's the way it goes. It's a great lesson to learn. You see it in churches today with some pastors, just the way it works. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. And uh, they were not willing, these guys, to sell God out, <clears throat> but they protested along the side of the educated, uh, philosophical, cultured, religious, stiff-necked men of their day was pushed aside and they're called heretics, just like it's always been down through history. Typical of Rome. By 1900 up to 1985, most of you have been born now, someplace. Anybody here born after 1985? I don't think so. You born after 1985? My God, how old am I? <laughs> when were you born? When were you born? When were you born? 88. Wow. I have to revise that note. <clears throat> By 1900 to 1990, most of you were born by then. <laughs> the real Bible believers, the men who just believe the Bible is the Word of God, they're called heretics. They're called heretics. And the scholars who don't ever believe they have a Bible uh, are the authority now for what we call New Testament Christianity. What a joke. The whole thing has been reversed. And it all got reversed because the devil had a plan that went back Many, 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 many years ago to make this thing happen. And most Christians lose sight of it because they don't know church history. 
They have no idea why, Christ, they don't even know that Christianity is in a mess today. They have no idea of their roots. They have no idea where they've come from. It's all a big gray mush. And I refuse to let my people in my church be ignorant of those things. If you're going to be ignorant of it, it's going to be because you chose to be, not because I didn't teach you about it. And, uh, you know, during the 1900s, in reality, the Baptists are, are the main line. Uh, let me set the steam for you. Christianity is still what somewhat relatively pure. Um, everybody knows who the Catholic Church is back then. They're not popular. And most people don't know this, but the Catholic Church was not popular up till about 1970 or 1980. John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president that we had. And most, none of you were probably, other than some of us, were born at that particular time. I know Sandy wasn't born yet. Nor was, you weren't born yet either, were you? No, I don't think so. Remember how that they, they hated him because he was Catholic? Yep. And it was a thing where they absolutely, they said, no Catholic would ever be president. The next thing they said was no black man would ever be president. But it was a big step for a Catholic guy to become president. Because Catholics were, were distrusted, they were hated, uh, they were looked at because of, of, of the Bible. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Everybody had a greater appreciation, even back in the 60s, because it was coming out of that thing where, you know, they still had an understanding, uh, 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 the, the lines were still drawn, it hadn't got gray yet. And you had the Catholic Church, and everybody knew what they were, everybody knew what the Protestant churches were. It wasn't like today where people are so idiotic, stupid, they don't even understand what denominations are. Back then, people understood that the Protestants were Lutheran, Methodist. They understood that they were, that they, uh, you know, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. They realized that they were Protestants because the word Protestant comes from the word protester. They were the church that came out of the Reformation. Everybody knew that. And everybody also knew that the Baptist church was the main line that was going back through history. They may not know it today, but they knew it back in the 40s and the 50s. They knew it back in the 30s. They still knew it in the 50s and the 60s, to some degree. But in 1900, around this period of time, up to the 1900s and the 1920s and the 1930s, the Baptists are hauling the mail. There's a Baptist church that had been set up through the Great Awakenings, the, our pilgrim fathers, when they came over, I know many of them were Puritans. Yes, that's true. But you've got to remember now that there's two groups of Puritans. And in history, they'll use the term Puritan, uh, and they won't tell you which group they're talking about. And the truth of the matter is, there is a group of Puritans that were goofy, and then there was a group of Puritans that were Baptist. And they won't tell you that. You have your Dutch Baptist, your English Baptist, your German Baptist, and they all come under the concept of, 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 the, uh, of, uh, of the Puritans. And they're called Puritans because they desired a pure life. And you had a group of that, a section, it was a weird group, but they, they fundamentally, but here again, history doesn't divide it out because history doesn't care. So when we see this country, this country was founded with Baptists, bottom line. It was the Baptists that came over uh, after the Mayflower. Uh, they started churches along the eastern seaboard. 
Bible Belt today down in Georgia, Alabama, is just riff with Baptist churches, even though today most of them are worthless. But it was the Baptist in the beginning of the 1900s that, that, that was the mainstay. And they were represented by three main groups, and you need to know what these groups are. Now, the largest and the most powerful group was the Southern Baptist. And uh, there's 30 million of them by 1977 in, in America. They have five seminaries, major seminaries. Their number one seminary is in Louisville, Kentucky. Then you had a group that were called General Association of Baptists. Sometimes they'll be abbreviated as a G-A-R-B. And they're sometimes called General Association of Regular Baptists. But they're called the General Association of Baptists. And they were smaller than the Southern Baptists, but they were still a formidable force. Then you had what is commonly called the American or the Northern Baptist. And by 1964... Uh, they're numbered into the millions. They have six major seminaries, seven universities, uh, 17 uh, uh, junior colleges, and uh, with a total of about 48,000 students. Now, the thing that I want you to see here, that there are no independent Baptists here, because independent Baptists have not arrived yet. We're still out there. We missed the turnoff when the Mayflower went on. We turn left and we're out there flowing around for a while. We haven't hit it yet. But th those were the Baptists. And down through the 1800s, these Baptist churches and the 1700s were good churches. And they're the ones that are doing the work. But they're also the ones, and remember now, we talked about how the movement, religion, education, science, and philosophy through the Jesuits as Europe goes and it moved, the Jesuit influence moves into America, and we see the devil destroying things with the cult groups, and then we saw, you know, the Westcott and Hort fiasco, the neo-evangelical, neo-orthodox, and everything going back to education, it has an effect on these three groups. And these three groups go into apostasy. And by 1920 and the 1930s, they're, they're really in bad shape. And even though in these groups were some good men, there were always has his remnant. You want to remember that. And many of those men were men that we talked about. They stayed in these churches, even though that they did not agree with it, and they, they did the best they could do. And then there was a little guy out there that was just hanging out by himself, that he would be the, he would be the independent before they were called independents. He was the guy that just was fed up with everything and just did his own thing. There's not many of them. And they're not even formed into a movement yet. But there are little guys out there that says, this is ridiculous. I ain't having anything to do with this. And they just do their own thing. God's always had his faithful few. But even though these groups, there were some good men who stood for the book, the machinery of such a conglomeration was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, that thing of... of of man, movement, machine, and monument had come full circle. And right now, at this particular time in time, the Southern Baptist Church is a machine. It is a, and, a, and so are the General Association and the American, there are machines. They're absolutely a machine. By 1958, the damage was completely done. They had turned out now through their seminaries seven or eight generations of preachers 
trained by professors that believed uh, just what the Gnostics of 400 A.D. believed, and it killed their zeal. In 1958, in the Southern Baptist Convention, it took 900, this is their statistics that they compiled together through all of their churches on a year's basis to show you where their progress was. In 1958, in the Southern Baptist Convention, it took 900 members to win one person to Christ. That means with all of their people, nobody was getting saved. And when you figure out how many was getting saved uh, and divided by the number of people, it actually took 900 people to get one person saved. 5,000 Southern Baptist churches that year recorded no baptism that year at all. The giving that year per person in the convention of over 20 million people was $25.50 per person. Less than 40% of the people of the Southern Baptist Convention attended church at all. 20% of that 40% never came to anything else. Yet the awesome machine continued to move, turning out quarterly record statistics, until in 1958 there was 27 different forms each Sunday for a Sunday school teacher to fill out about how his class went. It's what it got to. And you're laughing at it, but it's absolutely true. By 1950, the American Baptists are shot and the most liberal in the world. Jimmy Carter, remember him? He was an American Baptist. Everybody thought there was going to be happy days are here again when Jimmy Carter went into president because he was a Baptist. No, he was an American Baptist. By 1950 and Jimmy Carter's day, Jimmy Carter is the biggest liberal in the world. You know why? Because he's part of the organization down in Florida where they had an American Baptist church with a guy in his foyer of his church who ran about 6,000 on Sunday morning, had a statue of Buddha, Confucius, and Jesus Christ, and everybody was got along just fine. That's your American Baptist. And uh, no God, no Christ, no salvation, totally liberal. And that's the American Baptist. The GRB is probably the best of the bunch, but they lost their Bible. And you're not going to expect too much from them. I knew a lot of, I preached for a lot of GRB preachers. I had a number of friends that were GRB preachers. And they were good guys. But they're typical Baptist churches. They had no Bible. They didn't know what to do with their people. Their churches, you know, are, are just as confused as the pastor is. And they never really get anything done. They just follow into the traditional status quo that Baptist churches are supposed to be. But by the 1960s, here are the, here are the statistics of all three. And uh, they're all liberal. They're all completely shot. They're turning out generation after generation and after generation. In the 1920s and the 30s, the Southern Baptist seminaries were teaching their students that the Bible was fables that the story of Adam and Eve was not true, Jesus Christ was not God, Noah's flood was a fable, and this is what produced and really killed the Southern Baptist Convention. And today, the Southern Baptist Convention is divided into two groups. It split a number of years ago. And, you know, it split because the, it just got so bad that they just had to do something. So they split. Now they have a very liberal side and they have a more conservative side. 
but the conservative side uh, has, still doesn't have a Bible. So they're just a more better off screwed up than the other ones are screwed up. They're all screwed up. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. Another great lesson. When your church goes bad, when this church goes bad, let's just talk about this one. When this church goes bad, and I dump the Bible, and we lose the Word of God, when I get my doctor's degree, looking for it every day in the mail, when any church goes bad, the tendency is, is to try to stay in that church and to fix it. The principle is that will never work. Once apostasy and bad doctrine creep in, you'll never reverse the process. The only thing you can do is get out of it. This city is filled with people who go to their churches every week, and they hate going. They're not happy with the way it is. They don't like the way it's done because they don't teach the Bible or they're too liberal or this or that. But for whatever reason, they won't leave that church because they think that their being there, someday it may turn around. And they, they, they make one of the biggest mistakes that they will not understand the reality of that till they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Two men in church history prove that point. One of them is Martin Luther, and the other one is Erasmus. We've talked about both of them. Erasmus was the Roman Catholic priest who translated the Greek text from which your King James Bible came from. He hated the Catholic Church. He saw it for what it was. He wrote things against it. He was never favored by the Catholic Church. They were, he was a thorn in their side. His text went against their text. He took the text of the Waldensians, which became the text by which your King's Age Bible come from. And he was hated by the Roman Catholic Church, but he never left the church. He tried to reform it from the inside, and he got attacked by both sides and swallowed up. Martin Luther, on the other hand, also was a Roman Catholic priest. And he saw the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church, and he got out. Where one stayed and tried, they both saw the same things. They both were good men. They both had the right Bible, and they both were saved men. One tried to stay in the hell hole and fix it and got eaten alive by it. The other one got out of it and started a movement by which people could find Christ as their own personal Savior. You got to get out. You got to get out. You got to get out. By the 1960s, the official statistics are the Southern Baptist Convention has 32,000 churches, seven seminaries, 32 senior colleges, 21 junior colleges, and 39 hospitals in this country, all of them in apostasy. You're going to find that uh, some of the schools right around here in Kansas City, William Jewell, is a Southern Baptist school, as the one down in, uh, outside of Springfield. What is that? Uh, the what? Yeah, or outside of Springfield, but about 20 miles up north of Springfield. What is it? Yeah, uh, well, Southwest Missouri is one, but then there's another one down there where, uh, uh, what is it? Well, that's another one, but there's one that yeah, didn't matter. It's down there somewhere. There's a bunch of them. 
Uh, the, Southern, uh, the American Baptists have 7,000 churches, 10 major seminaries, 24 senior colleges, and 5 junior colleges. Uh, the GRB and all the other Baptists at that particular point in time number about 12,000 churches. And, uh, and of course, uh, every one of them is in apostasy. Every one of them is completely shot and soaked through uh, with, uh, and this is the clear warning in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and we talked this a couple of weeks ago uh, about how that be not deceived, you see. And this is what happened. This little, this little, this little formula is exactly what took place. They got deceived through education. Westcott and Hort disarmed them, and then the discouragement set in. And uh, there's a fourth one. Be not deceived, be not disarmed, be not discouraged, be not destroyed. And they got destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says that they're rich, and uh, they have need of nothing. And yet they know not that they're, they're, they're spiritually blind, they're wretched. He says, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church has deceived itself. This church has deceived itself. Now, I think it's very important for me personally. I can't speak for you. But I, I think it's absolutely imperative that, that I, as a Christian, not necessarily as a pastor, but as a Christian, understand my roots. I think that uh, I will be severely lacking in my life if I don't, you know, I, there's too many orphans in Christianity. And they don't know who their spiritual fathers are. And we've seen all through our, our study how no matter how dark it gets, God always has his faithful few. And uh, most of us are guilty of the same uh, mistakes our forefathers made. And that is the fact that we really have no sense of history. God always has some men who won't sell out uh, to lead the way uh, for men who won't be, uh, you know, who want to believe what God says. And I don't think that any man had a greater impact uh, in preserving what we have today. And I think it's an absolute uh, tragedy. I was going to say a shame. I don't think it's a shame. I think it's an absolute tragedy that we as God's people take so lightly what we have today. And I think that, you know, without a doubt, in my mind, in history, understanding history the way I do, that God uh, has always brought a man to the forefront. In the Dark Ages, to break the Roman Catholic Church, God used Martin Luther. There's no question about it. Martin Luther was an anvil of steel that all the hammers of the Roman Catholic Church were broken on. It's amazing that he died of old age. Uh, he, he, was the, he was the right man in the right place at the right time for God to break the back and to preserve uh, the Word of God in Europe. And though he never really did anything as far as a worldwide evangelism, he, God used him to open the door, as God does in many times, to, to bring the thing through, to get the Baptists who were suppressed by the Roman Catholic Church to get to the world. 
And it, missing things like that in history is just, to me, it's, it's a tragedy. And I think the greatest tragedy that we as Baptists, once you understand that we were the main line, and you see what happened and how it all went to apostasy, why we have a King James Bible today. Because by all rights, we should not have one. You know, by all rights, we should, we should have been swallowed up in all of those things that, that everybody else is swallowed up in. And uh, we should have been born in a time where the King James Bible was long gone and you probably couldn't even find one. But just as like God had Martin Luther in a time of the Dark Ages to hold the line and bring about the light, God in the 20th century had a man in the first part of the 20th century and had a man in the last part of the 20th century. The man in the first part of the 20th century was J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris is, in my mind, in my estimation, my own personal opinion, is the only reason that I have a King James Bible today. J. Frank Norris is one of the most unbelievable people that you'll have ever studied in your life. Many people to this day, and he's been dead now for over 60 years, in many places of this country, most men today, you say his name and they love you, and you get a free lunch, you say his name and I'll run you out of town on a rail. He was without a doubt, the single man, single-handedly, when the lights went out that stoked the fire and the reason why you got a Bible. J. Frank Norris is without a doubt one of the most incredible individuals. He lived one of the most in one of the most turbulent and uproarious lives that any man ever lived on this planet, outside maybe of the, of, of the guys back in the Dark Ages. He was the most fearless individual for God since Billy Sunday. But see, Billy Sunday was never a pastor. He was an evangelist. And his ministry was just as exciting. He started out as a young man as a Southern Baptist preacher. And... Uh, he was their fair-haired boy. And that's what the Southern Baptist Church would do. They'd find some guy, and they still do it today, by the way. They find, they, we got a guy right over here on the other side of town, Jerry Johnston. And Jerry Johnston is the biggest player you could ever hope to find anywhere on planet Earth. He's played everybody on, in, in every denomination to get where he wanted to get. When he started out, he started out with Youth for Christ, and he was a great preacher. He had a lot of fire, and he was just exactly what the, what the uh, Youth for Christ needed to carry them through and to make them something big and something special because they had a dynamic preacher, and they, 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 they used him as that. And they used him and wrote on his ability to preach, and, uh, and he was a good preacher. He, they used him and wrote on his coattails and, and his success as one of their boys. But old Jerry wasn't dumb. Old Jerry used them as much as they used him. And Jerry, unlike Al Metzger, who was running it back then, um, Jerry had the freedom to, as he grew up, to play both ends against the middle. Because everybody wanted Jerry. And Jerry was free to play it footloose and fancy to get whatever Jerry wanted to go wherever he wanted to go. Jerry Johnson wound up, when he was an evangelist, being the kind of evangelist that he would not come to preach in your town to your church if you not could, get, could not guarantee him a crowd of 5,000 people. Because Jerry Johnson's preaching ability was too valuable to waste on anybody less than 5,000. 
I'm not speaking out of school. I, I, I know Jerry Johnson. I, I, this, is, this, is, this is the truth. I've talked to him about this over the years. We don't talk anymore, but, uh, you know. I remember one time we, back at the Baptist Temple, Truman Dollar was courting him and trying to get him to join the Baptist Temple because everybody wanted the great Jerry Johnson to be in their, in their church. And some of the guys on the staff, we, there's a little disagreement over wanting Jerry Johnson because Jerry Johnson was self-righteous as far as that's concerned. And he just wasn't what I could want to go pile around with. And so pastor called a great staff meeting back then. You ever been to a great staff meeting? You, they're like the ecumenical council. All the pastors come in and he invited Jerry Johnston in so we could reconcile our differences. And, uh, and I was always the rebel. I was always the outcast. I was always the troublemaker. And uh, all the other guys showed up, you know, and they, they had their little penguin sweaters on with their little alligator shirts. And Jerry has a three-proof suit. And the meeting was at 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and it was in the middle of turkey season, and I was out turkey hunting. So when I showed up, I had my camouflages on and just plopped into the deal there and came into the meeting. And it went like this. Truman went around, and he, what he wanted to do was pave the way. We, want, we were going to pave the way that we wanted Jerry to know that there wasn't any issues that we wanted him in our church. And every past, every staff member was told, you know, if you have a difference with him, let's do what the Bible says and work it out. And, you know, could we want this guy in our church? Why? I wasn't sure, but we want him in our church. So, you know, everybody went around the room and, and kissed his rear end. And, you know, and I remember one guy uh, in particular who was, last I heard of him, was pastoring a church over here in Independence, Lee Payne. Remember Lee Payne? And... Uh, came around to Lee Payne, and Lee Payne was an amalgamated butt kisser. I don't know what to tell you. And uh, I liked the guy, but he never believed the Bible was the Word of God a day in his life. His key to everything was philosophy and, and nothing about the Bible. And, um, you know, he went to Springfield, Missouri, was a teacher down there, got kicked out of there for a while. He was the music director at a church where I was at, and he left there or whatever happened. I don't remember, but anyway, uh, we finally come around to him. And he, and he really he really made me mad. I mean, up to that point, I was I was just going to go with the status quo. But you get me in a meeting, and then you say something that really ticks me off, and I just lose it. And I'll say something just to wreck the whole thing. And Lee Payne said this. He says, Jerry, he says, personally, I think that our problem is, is we're all jealous of you and your success. He says, I think that that's the whole problem here. That we're jealous of you, and that uh, we have, uh, you know, that we're just, uh, and that's our issue. That we, 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 we're envious of your success, we're envious of your, of who you are, and, and we're just, you know, and first of all, he has no right to speak. I don't, I don't care about the other guys, he ain't got any right to speak for me. But I'm next, so I'm going to speak for myself, so that didn't really bother me. And you know, when you, you know, how many saw the Macy's Day Parade? You see those big blowed up things that they carry down there? Well, you could just see him being blowed up by, you know, Lee Payne, you know, found the little air valve and, you know, up he goes, you know. And 
And so, it, it, you know, and everybody now, and I could see Truman Dollar, he was just happy. You know, that was, that's exactly what he wanted. That's the kind of stuff. That's, that was politically correct. And so it comes to me. And I'm sitting pretty much where you're at, where I'm at the end of the table. He's around there. And I said, Jerry, I said, i tell you the truth. He said, I said, I'm not envious of you. I'm not jealous of you. I said, personally, I said, I don't think you could preach your way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> and I said, but that's my own personal opinion. I said, I have nothing against you. I said, if there's anything I, I don't, I don't, anything that I'm suspect about you, it's simply this. I don't trust any man that doesn't wear camouflage. <laughs> and he just laughed and he took it pretty good, you know. I looked over there at old Truman. He's red in the face, you know. He's, I can say to myself, I'm going to pay for this later. But it was worth it. You know, hang me up and whip my back. But boy, every lash, I felt good. But, you know, and he, he had, when he would come to town, you had to put him up in the best hotel. I know of a fact that preachers that had him in, they put him up in a Holiday Inn. He checked out of the Holiday Inn and went to the Hyatt or the highest place in town, checked in there, and stuck the pastor with both bills. Now, when you get to the place, ladies and gentlemen, where you can't stay in a Holiday Inn because you think your end is better than, and it, it, it qualifies for the best hotel in the place, and your preaching ability is such that you can't preach to less than 4,000 people, you've got some serious issues in life, son. But he played it. Once he played the fundamentalist, then he moved to the Southern Baptist, and he was their fair-haired boy. And they carried him around and toted him. Ah, the great Gary Johnson. Da, 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 da. We got him. We got him. He's with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have God. We got Gary Johnson. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, then he played them for a number of years, and then he, you know, moved on, and he went to the charismatic movement. Oh, and I remember when that happened. Everybody was mad. We felt betrayed. I didn't. He still didn't wear camouflage, and I didn't trust him any farther than either. But everybody felt betrayed. But he had, he had left us, you know, went to the charismatic. Hey, that sucker would play anybody, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. But that, you know, it's not all his fault. And in his defense, in his defense, you know who taught him to be that way? The established churches in the religion. Starting all the way back with Al Metzger and Ronnie Metzger in the Youth for Christ. They used him. They brewed him to stardom. They put him on TV. They made him bigger than life. They gave him rock star status. And then the kid said, hmm, I like this. And he learned how to use it. And when he was done with them, because they were a peanut organization, he moved into the fundamental circles, which was a big organization. And when he ran the thing around there, I remember... He came to our church one time and he preached and he got up and he told people that night that he had just finished a, a church in Akron, Ohio, which I knew the church, and they had 900 people saved. And that was the kind of press he'd put out because who, what pastor wouldn't want to have a guy that you got 900 people saved? I mean, if that's true, man, I mean, uh, that's like saying, I want Moses because he's going to split the Red Sea. Well, I'm on his side, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's a pretty good deal. Back that day, if you got 900 people saved in a, four, in a week campaign, you were, you were something. Okay? I mean, uh, I, I'll never forget that night. I mean, I had just come back from a revival, and he got up, and, 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 and uh, he, he, he was telling his story, and he says, uh, he said, uh, um, he said uh, I just preached last week at the, at the 
Akron Baptist Temple, and he said, he said, 900 people made, people, 900 people made decisions. And everybody, huh, huh, huh. And when they had the offering, pastor had me come up and pray, and I said, and I had just come back from preaching at George Grace's church, and, and I said, and I'll add to Jerry Johnson, I said, I preached last week at George Grace's church, and I said, I had, I had 2,500 people make a decision. Ah! I said, I got done preaching, and 2,500 people decided to go home. <laughs> <laughs> kind of put the damper on what he said, you know. He didn't like that either. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself. So I called Akron Baptist Temple the next, because he had been there a week before. So they had a Sunday in between. And I asked a lady, I said, hey, I heard that you guys had uh, Jerry Johnson up there, and you, you preached, and he had 900 people saved. She said, that's absolutely correct. She says, Pastor, it was the greatest revival our church has ever had. Just like that. I thought she was passing out on me, you know. I said, did your water break? Are you on your way to the hospital? What's the deal here, you know? And I said, wow, that's incredible. I said, and that was to see, that was not this Sunday. I said, that was the following Sunday. Is that correct? She says, that's correct. I said, wow. I said, can I ask you another question? She said, oh, yeah. She said, I said, how many people did you baptize this last Sunday? Yeah, it got just as quiet as it did when I said that. Didn't baptize anybody. You see, it's all fun and games. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's nothing's real. Nothing's real. But that's what the Southern Baptist Church, as we all did back then. We used people. We got an up-and-coming rising star. We used him, and unfortunately, we ruined him. And that's where Jerry Johnson is, who he is today. I don't, I don't blame him. He was trained by the best con men in Christianity. He's a product of a Christianity that will take a young man, blow smoke in his ears and tell him all that he wants to hear, take his natural God-given ability and let it develop, use him, exploit him, use him for raising money, use him for all of this, and then try to blame him later because he gets thinking in his head, well, if you use me to raise money... Why can't I do it and raise money for me? Why should I raise money for you? Why do you always have to make my deal for me? I'm the Jerry Johnston king of the world. I'll make my own deals. That's what happens. And that's what the Southern Baptists tried to do to J. Frank Norris. They brought him up as their fair-haired boy. They brought him up to the point where uh, they set him up in a, in a big church in Dallas. And he was their fair-haired boy. But the problem was, God had other plans for J. Frank Norris. <laughs> he exposed the denominational bosses in the Southern Baptist Convention for their unscriptural practices from the pulpit. He got in and preached messages and exposed the humanistic teaching and the philosophies and got many of the teachers fired from the Southern Baptist schools for the stuff that they were teaching and German rationalism. He could not be bought. He could not be bribed by the higher authorities of the convention, and he blasted them for their unbiblical ways. He literally tore Baylor University apart, got seven teachers fired for teaching Darwin's evolution. The name Norris would name names and give out telephone numbers from the pulpit. Norris was a country boy, born in Alabama, 
He's called the Texas Tornado. The Bible-believing Baptist had no, as a Bible-believing Baptist, he had no more respect for Marx, Darwin, and the Jesuits than the Southern Baptist Convention that he did for rattlesnakes, scorpions, and armadillos. He produced two of the largest churches on the North American continent at Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas. Then he raised more than $5 million during the Depression. Norse was saved in Alabama when he was young and baptized in a creek near Dixon Mills, Alabama. He graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. He was courted by the, uh, by the Southern Baptist Convention, began preaching in Dallas, Texas. His first church had 13 members. In 1909, he was called to the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth because the Southern Baptists wanted to give him this large, big church because they looked at him, just like Jerry Johnson, as their fair-haired boy. And immediately, he offended nearly everybody, all of the high-class deacons, all the educated class. Norris was blunt and to the point. No other preacher of his day or after had such a keen mind and ability to preach to people. One meeting, he preached on hell every night for seven days until the place broke. The chairman of the board of the deacons in Fort Dallas-Fort Worth tried to have him fired. He, in turn, fired the whole deacon board. In 1913, he exposed what he called the ten top devils in Fort Worth, Texas. Don't you know that one over big? And all of them were the rich, educated, religious, and the corrupt leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. The news media boycotted him. The Southern Baptist Convention excommunicated him. Ninety-five percent of his church stayed behind him through the whole fight. 165 people gathered and swore to kill him. Attempts were made on his life two times in secret, one in open. He shot the guy. Guy called him up on the phone, said, I'm gonna, he was in his church office. God called him on the phone, said, I'm going to come over and kill you. Norris said, I'll be here till four. <laughs> guy drove up, come into the church office, kicked the door open. Norris stood up. The guy pulled out a gun. Norris beat him to draw and shot him dead right on the floor. From that little piece of action, he got prostituted by the press as, the, as a six-shooting, toting preacher, which he liked. I mean, you can say whatever you want, but that was the last time everybody ever tried to take him on face-to-face. And uh, a mayor in Texas was so outraged over Norris's preaching that he was preaching in a tent. While he was preaching, the guy, the mayor, went up and cut the ropes on the tent so it would fall down on all the people that was in it. He was opposed by the press, the Jewish rabbis, the Knights of Columbus, the Catholic Action Group, and the Southern Baptist Convention, the professors and teachers from all their schools. He was mobbed in Decatur, Texas, and in Waco, Texas. In one town, he walked into a howling mob that had formed to hang him, and he stood on the tailgate of a pickup truck and preached on the prodigal son, and 40 men got saved. Through all of his preaching, the main line of his message was the apostasy of higher education and its damning to young men and young ladies. Being educated by the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, on, his, uh, on this, he zeroed in unmercifully. He found, out, he, he, uh, he, he found out that the real troublemakers and church splitters were the faculty members of the Christian schools who manipulated the pastor, put in their pet students, and then ran the whole show just like they do today, just like we talked about. Dr. B.H. Carroll, who was a great Southern Baptist uh, guy at that time and uh, try a, kind of a rear-end kisser himself, 
met Norris in private and discussed the idea of starting a, the Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary to fight the German and the European rationalism in the Christian schools. Uh, it was teaching philosophy, religion, education, science, and had destroyed them. Instead, Norris opened his own school in 1939, called it the Baptist, uh, Bible Baptist Seminary. He began with 16 students. Greek and Hebrew was not on the curriculum. They took for granted that the English Bible, the King James 1611, was the Word of God. When this happened, the church at Forthwith and Norris were kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. This led to the World Baptist Fellowship, which Norris started. And it grew quickly from all uh, the true men who loved the book, Real Baptist. Uh, Norris uh, was kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention for the following reason. These are the reasons they gave for excommunicating him. One, because he caused problems exposing evolution at Baylor University and getting seven unsaved professors fired. Two, failing to give, uh, uh, give $200,000 to a $7 million goal by the Southern Baptist Convention to put out more trash that was against God's word. Three, not using the standard dead godless Sunday school material put out by the dead godless Christian scholarship and using the Bible instead. Four, because he offended the brethren by his preaching and his methods, soul winning and preaching on the street. And Norris's approach was to tell it like it is. He put out his own nap- a paper called The Searchlight in 1927, called The Searchlight Fundamentalist. Norris's approach was to tell it like it is. He was attacked for his unprofessionalism and being uncouth. He once called a famous apostate pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention from the pulpit a flop-eared suck-egg hound. <laughs> He attacked communists and Catholicism and the Southern Baptist contention with equal vigor. Uh, and uh, you can talk about his problems, and we're going to get into that next week, he's, he's, or next time. He's human. His ethics at time were questionable, uh, as well as some of his dealing with the brethren. But in a time when God needed something for a nation that had rejected God and rejected the Word of God and apostatized into Bible-hating, Bible-denying, uh, Bible-correcting fundamentalists, he found a jet-propelled atomic sledgehammer in one J. Frank Norris from start to finish uh, to bust this thing wide open. And J. Frank Norris is the key to you and me. And we're going to hold up there tonight. We'll pick it up next time, and we'll walk it through, and we'll either finish next time or get close to finishing. we probably got one or two more sessions here, but I want you to see how this thing goes as we put it all together. So.